I want to preach a little bit of a, a unique, kind of a different type of sermon today. It's a very different type of talk, but because it's Fourth of July weekend, I want to answer this question: Is America a Christian nation? Is America a Christian nation? Let's talk about that. It says in Proverbs 14, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And in Psalm 33, it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. It's a good thing as a nation to be able to say, our God is the Lord, the Lord the Lord God as he reveals himself in the word of God. I wanna give a lot of credit for this message to a historian and author named William Federer. He's really an expert on this subject. I almost just played one of his speeches for you today, but uh, I get a lot of this content from his work. Uh, But I think about how people today will tell you that America is not a Christian nation. And what they wanna do is present our country like it's just this secular group of people that came together and formed a country, and that we shouldn't bring God into the public square, we shouldn't talk about faith in combination with politics or policy, and then there are even Christians that would maybe feel discouraged and say, no, we're not a Christian nation anymore, look how bad things are, look how sinful it is. There are some who will try to argue that our founding fathers weren't really Christians, that they were just deists, and deists, they believe in God, but they don't believe that God is involved in the affairs of man. Uh, There's a huge movement today to degrade and slander and misrepresent our founding fathers and reshape the history of the United States, painting the founding fathers as racists and pagans, There are pastors today who will say that Christians should stay out of politics or the public square. Uh, And the word politics, it comes from the Greek word polis, which just means city. So it just really means, politics means like the business of the city. So is it at all sensible that Christians should stay out of the business of their city, of their community? It's absolutely not reasonable. We are salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if we're not involved in the world, we'll experience more corruption and decay and pain. America would not even exist if Christians had stayed out of politics. The 30th president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge, said in 1926, the principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy in order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunity to put them into action, whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But every charter of each of the original American colonies was founded with clear, clearly stated allegiance to a particular Christian denomination. You know, a lot of churches today are like non-denominational churches. Uh, People will say, you know, I'm like non-denominational. Well, it's funny, like the original states were all denominational. Uh, Virginia was Anglican. Massachusetts was Puritan. Rhode Island was Baptist. New York was Dutch Reformed. Delaware and New Jersey were Swedish Lutheran. Connecticut and New Hampshire were Congregationalist. Pennsylvania was Quaker. They had differences of theology when it came to secondhand issues, but they also all worked together to fight against. 
the king of England, which makes a good point that sometimes Christians have to set aside secondary differences and work together to fight against totalitarian dictators or else we'll lose it all. When you go back in history, what happened is that King Henry VIII was originally Catholic at one point. He was the king of England, and he had six wives uh, in the course of his life. They were divorced, beheaded, died, uh, divorced, beheaded, survived. And he wanted to divorce his first wife, but the Pope wouldn't give him permission to. And so he said, okay, if the, the head of the church won't bless off on my divorce, I'll just start my own church. and I'll become the head of my own church. And so the Church of England was born, and King Henry's advisors told him, if you really want to separate yourself from the Catholic Church, you need to get a Bible in English. And so he did that. He set about commissioning an English Bible, which ironically, there was an English Bible that had been written just a few years earlier by William Tyndale. He had translated the Bible into English, and King Henry burned him at the stake for daring to translate the Bible into English. And right before he died, uh, the last words he spoke were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And in a weird way, God did. King Henry then commissioned this Bible in English. Most of our English Bibles kind of, we have a lot to thank William Tyndale for. But this Bible was called the Great Bible. It was before the King James Version uh, was Written, this great Bible was chained to the pulpits of England churches. And what happened is that over time, Christians, now that they had a Bible in a language they could read, they started to read it. It's funny how that works. When you have a Bible you can read, you're more likely to read it and understand it. And as they read it and understood it, they started to see that. There was a lot of stuff going on in the Church of England that didn't really line up with the Bible. And the king of England, who was supposed to be the head of the church, divorcing and killing his wives because they wouldn't give him a son, wasn't really biblical. And there was a group of Christians who wanted to see the, the church purified, and we call them Puritans now. There was another group who wanted to separate themselves from the Church of England. They called themselves separatists. Now, we call them oftentimes pilgrims. But the king of England was persecuting these Puritans. He didn't want Puritans saying that he was doing something wrong, so he was persecuting them, and, and uh, he persecuted Christianity in a lot of ways. For example, if you were a Christian in England in this time, you were not allowed to just pray. You weren't allowed to just pray whatever you wanted to pray to God. The thinking was, if you just prayed whatever you wanted, you would mess up your prayer, and we can't have that. So they had what they called a book of common prayers. And if you were caught praying a prayer that wasn't officially approved in the book of common prayers, you could be arrested. You could be arrested for preaching the gospel within five miles of a city without the court's approval. You could be arrested for gathering just to have a Bible study. Uh, and they would literally show up and they would disband you if you were having a Bible study. And that's where the term the riot act came from, like reading someone the riot act. The king's uh, people would come in. they say, y'all have to get out of here or else face arrest. The king outlawed coffee shops because people were gathering there to have Bible study. So the pilgrims, they fleed to Holland 
and then to America around 1620. And they arrived at Plymouth Rock and they realized we have a problem. Here we are, this group of us who've come here for religious freedom and we don't have any king appointed leader among us. We don't have any governing leader who's commissioned and approved of by the king or the court of England. And so what they did, it was very unique, is they gave themselves authority to start a government. And the Mayflower Compact says this, we in the presence of God covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic to enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet or necessary unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. So this was unique in history, whereas instead of all the authority coming from the king down, uh, they said, you know, we're going to establish a government with bottom-up rulership and power coming from the people through their representatives. And around 1630, the king, obviously, he didn't like this, so started to persecute the Puritans. About 20,000 Christians fled inland to New England, called the Great Puritan Migration. And then as Puritans became a little bit more powerful, they wanted to make it so that you could only vote in the local elections if you were a Puritan. And other Christian pastors like Reverend Thomas Hooker, he argued that any Christian in good standing should be able to vote. Isn't this funny now to think how far we've come where we've got people voting who are dead. (laughs) We've got people voting who are not American citizens. But there was a time when you had to be a, a good Christian to vote. I wish we could go back to those days, right? Like how much better off would we be if only Christians could vote? I would even just settle for only living people, but I mean. (laughs) So what happened was because of these disagreements, pastors started to head off with their congregations and establish towns and cities. And I didn't really realize this until recently, but a lot of the, the villages, the towns, and the cities that we know today were founded by pastors and their small congregations. Imagine if I showed up to church next week and I was like, all right, folks, bring your minivans, follow your stuff. We're heading off east to Apache Junction. We're going to start a, a new community out there past it, and it'll just be us, Generation Village, you know? Like, just br- <laughs> like, some of you are liking the sound of that. It was kind of crazy. So here is a, a statue of Thomas Hooker in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, he led his congregation there. You see him, he's holding a Bible. He was the pastor of his church and they founded the city of Hartford, Connecticut. There's a plaque in England in St. Mary's Church about Thomas Hooker and it describes him as the founder of the state of Connecticut in 1636 and gives him the title, the father of American democracy. How did he get this, t- this title? Well, what happened was, when he and his small congregation uh, established their city as they were setting up you know, the, their households and gathering together, the congregation came to their pastor and they said, Pastor, can you preach a sermon and teach us how to set up a government? So he did that. And in his sermon, he said, the foundation of authority is laid firstly in the free consent of the people. And instead of power coming from the top down from a king, Pastors were preaching that power should flow up from the people through their representative leaders. Now get this, the state of Connecticut used Pastor Hooker's sermon as the state constitution for almost 200 years. 
from 1639 to 1813. And you see the influence of Christianity in the very first moments of American government. The state constitution, it was called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut in 1639. It was written, it says this, the people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. Look, look at this. To preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. Tell me God's hand wasn't in the founding of America. People will try to argue that America isn't a Christian nation, but we wouldn't even exist without Christianity. And we definitely wouldn't be great without Christianity. Here's another plaque in Hartford, Connecticut. Amen. We can give God thanks for that. This is a plaque in Hartford, Connecticut. I know you can't read it, but here's what it says. About 100 members of Thomas Hooker's congregation arrived safely in this vicinity to build a new community. Here they established the form of government upon which the present Constitution of the United States is modeled. Isn't that amazing? Their church government became the community government. People will say, you know, separation of church and state. But in reality, it was the church who created the state and gave it its power. America is great because we were founded on the values of our great God. Be clear on that. And there are a lot of people today, they're patriotic, they've got conservative family values, but they don't understand that all of those values come from our God. The pastors who influenced the founding principles of our nation, they preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a polite Jeffersonian way of saying any idiot can see that this is true. They were a lot more polite back then, weren't they? And they believed all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, unalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You notice what they wrote that life was listed first before liberty because liberty is of no value to you if you're dead. And it's so important that Christians are clear and united on this, that any politician who will take innocent human life will not hesitate to take your liberty either. If you're new to our church, maybe you haven't heard me say this in the past, but I've been very clear on this these last few years as our political landscape has changed. It is unconscionable and unacceptable for a professing believer in Jesus to place a vote in support of a pro-choice politician. Because God is very clear that life comes from God and is meant to be protected by God's people. We don't have the right to take away the life of someone else unjustly, especially the life of an innocent baby in the womb. Abortion is a sin against our creator. And we cannot have anything to do with supporting it. Even if a politician has you know, positions that are more favorable for you in other ways, we can't vote for pro-choice politicians without sinning against our God. This is controversial in a lot of churches. 
And there are pastors who will even argue with me, and they'll say, well, you can't force your faith on people. They'll say, you can't legislate morality. And let me kind of, it's kind of partially true in some ways, partially false. So let me clarify this. It's true that you can't force saving faith on people. You know, we're not, as Christians, wanting to, you know, line people up and put a funnel in their mouth and pour communion down their throat. You can't just, like, force people into the church parking lot and, you know, get saved, be, be saved, like, convert or die. We're not Muslim. We're Christians. So, you know, you can't force people to believe in Jesus, and you're only saved by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came, that he was God and man, he died for our sins on the cross, and he rose again. You put all your faith in him. He's the one that's going to save my soul. He's the one that forgives my sins. He's the one that gives eternal life. I'm putting all my trust in him. That's how we're saved. It's not by going to the right church or taking communion or getting sprinkled when you're a baby. You can only be saved by faith. But we can, as Christians, create conditions for our, for our community through the government, the government and our governing leaders that make it easier for people to come to saving faith. Like for example, if kids can go to school without being lied to about basic things like their gender, without being shamed for believing the Bible, that makes it easier for them to grow up and come into saving faith. So people will say, and you'll hear this, you can't legislate morality. It's absolutely false. We we absolutely can and do legislate morality. Morality comes from God. It comes from the God of the Bible. All of our notions of morality, I mean, you read the Ten Commandments, you go back through our Exodus series, you'll learn a lot about this, but they come from God. Things like, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, Some of our most fundamental, agreed-upon, necessary laws like don't murder, don't steal other people's stuff, those laws come from God. That's morality that we have legislated. And, you know, if someone broke in your house and they were trying to steal your stuff or they were trying to murder you, you know, uh, you would pick up the phone and call the police. Well, this is Arizona. You'd probably pick up something else first, right? (laughs) You pick up something else. You got a phone in one hand. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. But, but when, you, when you call upon the law to come to your aid in a situation like that, you're literally legislating and enforcing morality upon an evildoer. And laws are meant to, to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. So we absolutely do legislate Morality. The question really is, whose standard of morality are we going to allow to govern our nation? Is it going to be God's or is it going to be a secular, majority, agreed upon version of morality? You see, what Jesus knew is that you can't force anyone to follow him. You can't force him down someone's throat. People have to choose to follow him. And Jesus, when he was teaching, he actually said some things on purpose to try to force people away. He would preach hard things. And people in the crowd would say, this is a hard saying. Who can accept this? People would leave him. They would go away upset. That's why as a pastor, I never get really worked up or bothered if people walk out of my sermon 
upset. Now I have had bad dreams where like the whole room gets up and leaves. In the middle, I've had, that, I've had that dream like multiple times. I'm preaching a sermon, y'all just start walking out. Like, I'm like, no way, it's gonna get better. And then I wake up like. <laughs> but um, I don't get too worried when people leave mad. You know, they're just wrestling with the Lord. It doesn't hurt my feelings. And Jesus had that happen to him all the time. Uh, the colonial pastors back in the days of our founding, they realized the kingdom of God could never be forced from the top down. And that's what had happened up into that point in human history. Whoever was king would force his religious beliefs on everyone. And if you didn't agree with his religious beliefs, you would either be burned at the stake or beheaded or fed to wild animals. But pastors and and Christians, they knew that, that you can't do that. You can't force the kingdom of God on people from the top down. But if the majority of people in our civilization held godly values... And if we elected representatives with godly values, then laws would be passed reflecting those values, the values of the kingdom of God, and faith would come voluntarily percolating up from the bottom, not forced from the top down. And that's what we see. That is what shaped our nation in the days of our founding. We see the hand of God throughout the founding of America. And it's almost hard to not see it. It's shocking to me that these things aren't taught in public schools today. But the Constitutional Convention, after we won the War of Independence from England, the delegates came together. They started working on creating a constitution. Uh, and it wasn't perfect. You know, people talk about how well, they, you know, they ratified the constitution while still allowing slavery to exist in parts of America. And it's true, they, you know, they didn't get it 100%, but we got to give them credit that they at least created the conditions that allowed them to come back and fix that problem. So that's really something to praise God for. But what happened was during the Constitutional Convention, these delegates come together, and they had been fighting and bickering for some time, and they couldn't agree, and they were divided. And it's so interesting and powerful to me. Benjamin Franklin basically got up and gave a well-documented speech. And he said to the guys, like, what are we doing? We're fighting amongst ourselves. I'm paraphrasing. And he said, you know, back when we were at war with England, every time we gathered together, we would have prayer because we were aware of our need for God. And he's basically saying to the the people, they're like, we've forgotten our need for prayer and, and our need to bring God into this moment. And so what they did was they broke the convention for three days and they had a time of prayer and fasting And when they came back together, Benjamin Franklin said this, quote, I will suggest, Mr. President, mind you, he's talking to George Washington here, that we bring a chaplain to this convention whose duty it shall be uniformly to assemble with us and introduce the business of each day and address to the creator of the universe and the governor of all nations. Who is he talking about? God, beseeching him to preside in our counsel, enlighten our minds with a portion of heavenly wisdom, influence our hearts with the love of truth and justice, and crown our labors with complete and abundant success. And look what he said. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? And they had a major breakthrough in this constitutional convention as they refocused 
their minds on their need for God? Where, where do their, our founding fathers get their ideas about God and, and how that should shape our nation? Um, well, they got a lot of ideas from the Magna Carta, from the Roman Republic, but also from the Bible, obviously a lot from the Bible. And today we don't really oftentimes grasp how uh, prevalent and widespread Christianity was in society at that time. Almost everyone in America would identify as Christian, even if they weren't all necessarily believers in their heart. Almost everyone was Christian. Our most prestigious universities, our most esteemed universities like Harvard and Yale, uh, they were established to train pastors. These universities were established as seminaries to train pastors. So they taught Hebrew and the Bible, and they were training pastors. Now, this is so interesting and powerful to me. When the Constitution was written, it needed to be ratified by nine states to go into effect. Eight states had said yes, and New Hampshire was getting together, and they were about to vote no. And so what happened was a guy named Samuel Langdon, who was the president of Harvard University, he rode to the New Hampshire Constitutional Ratifying Convention. And here's what he said to them. He gave them a speech. He said this, the Republic of the Israelites as an example to the American states. This was the title of his speech. The Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. And he went on to say, instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American Union and see this application plainly. And he gave them this speech about the Republic of the Israelites, and after this address, New Hampshire did ratify the Constitution, and it went into effect. So think about this. Our U.S. Constitution went into effect and was ratified after a sermon about the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. And Samuel Langdon, uh, he, in his address, he said this, that the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages of government on Republican principles, from abject slavery, a mere mob, to a well-regulated nation under laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. Think about how powerful this is. The Israelites, they were slaves. They couldn't even read. And then they got downloaded this form of government from God through the Holy Scriptures. The, the Republic of the Israelites, what is it, you might wonder? It was the first uh, period of time, the first 400 years that the nation existed from leaving Egypt before they got a king, King Saul. And you got to understand that going back through human history, as long as there has been written record, this was the first time in human history that millions of people governed themselves with no king. Everyone was equal. And it was power, like, so, for example, they worshiped the one true God, but they did not force anyone to worship God. They had strangers, immigrants living among them, and they said, you can worship God if you want, but we're not going to force you to or threaten you if you don't. They allowed private land ownership. That was part of God's idea that you could own land. Uh, every family owned land in the nation of Israel. And they knew godly wisdom said, you know, if you can own land, you can work and you can build something. You can accumulate stuff, which is part of, of being blessed. And if you own stuff, you can choose to give some of it away, which is what the Bible calls charity. Right? Karl Marx said in 1848, communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. 
In ancient Israel, they taught the children the law. And that's the battleground still that we face today. The kids are being indoctrinated in public school, through YouTube, through TikTok, through culture, through media. But we know that for a, a community, for a nation to thrive, the children must be taught the truth. In Deuteronomy 6, it said, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So listen, if your kids go to public school, I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I'm just saying you've got to make sure that they are taught God's word diligently. The Republic of Israel, they didn't need police because everyone was taught the law and everyone enforced the law. There was no standing army. Every man was in the militia armed with a a sword on his thigh and he was ready to protect his own wife and family and community. Israel had no prisons. In Israel, when someone committed a crime or was accused of committing a crime, they would immediately bring them to the city gates. The elders got together. They would have a trial right there. Either they were found innocent or guilty. If they were guilty, they either paid a fine or they worked off their debt or they were executed. It was was done. It wasn't this long, drawn-out process with millions of, of dollars being spent housing criminals for God knows how long. It was just a very different type of system. They had a welfare system that was bureaucracy-free. Think about that. It was bureaucracy-free. Government wasn't involved in welfare. In Egypt, remember, there was a famine at one point. Joseph was involved in the famine. um, And the government gave the people of Egypt food during this time of famine, but it was in exchange for the people's land. The government used that crisis to seize control and take people's land. And the people, then they lost their power. They lost their rights when they lost their land. But in Israel, God commanded his people that when they were harvesting their crops from their fields, they should leave the corners of the fields unharvested so that poor people could come and pick through it and glean through it. Poor people were taken care of in a decentralized manner instead of politicians collecting everyone's money and then handing it out in exchange for votes. I know for someone right now, you're like, (laughs) they had honest business practices in ancient Israel. In Proverbs 20, it says, the Lord hates dishonest weights and dishonest scales do not please him. In other words, man, cheating people in business, God hates that. They got to choose their own leaders uh, of different... There are different villages and towns. Moses commanded the people in Deuteronomy 1. He said, choose some well-respected men from each tribe who are known for their wisdom and understanding, and I will appoint them as your leaders. They had a republic, and they prospered with God as their king for generations. Then they messed it all up. They said, like, we want a king. And God was like, why do you want a king? And they said, well, we want to be like all the other nations. God was like, okay. If you have a king, he's going to oppress you, and you're going to be sorry. They said, we want to be like everyone else. Today, you have a huge chunk of Americans. They don't want to be a Christian nation. They want to be like all the other nations. If you become godless like other nations, you get the problems of other nations. right? Like you see today, countries that were once great, like the U.K., or Australia, where they've increasingly turned their backs on God. They've lost their freedoms. They've lost their economic power. France today is being overrun by Islam. There's actually radical jihadists today who are promising to conquer France and make it a Muslim nation by force. Godless cities like San Francisco once were prosperous and shining stars, and now they're crumbling 
and abandoned and crime-riddled. Word of God says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So is America a Christian nation? It's really interesting. Justice David Brewer, he was on the Supreme Court in 1892. There was a case called the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. Is there a picture of Justice Brewer? Maybe there, yeah, there you go. He actually, in his ruling on this case, in his opinion, he declared very clearly that the United States is a Christian nation. And that's what shaped his ruling on this case. So what does God command us to do in order to be righteous? It starts with us, the people of God, his church. We can't just sit around complaining about how bad the world is and how bad everybody else is until first we look in the mirror and examine our own lives and we repent of our own sin and we clean up our mess. It starts with us living righteously, our families, our church body. So then we see what God commands of us. He gives commands to five groups of people, individuals, family, businesses, the church, and government. To individuals, he basically says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's all. It's easy, right? (laughs) Just love your neighbor as yourself. It's not really that easy to do it. It's short, you know, but it's all-encompassing. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. To families, God says, husband, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husband. Children, obey your parents. To businesses, God says, do an honest day's work and pay your workers an honest wage. Don't hold back their wages. To the church, we're commanded to preach the gospel, to equip the saints, to take care of the poor. That's why churches and Christianity, we're the ones who started things like hospitals and orphanages. God commanded us to take care of the poor and widows and orphans, and we should still be doing those things. When you read scripture, God's command to governing leaders, they're like the shortest. The government gets the shortest list. All God says to them is protect the innocent, punish the guilty. That's that's what government is supposed to do. Protect the innocent, punish evildoers. There's no command to the government in scripture to take care of the poor. God never told the government to get involved in health care. God never told the government to get involved in education. Those are meant to be the church's role. And government today has usurped the church's role. And what you see for a lot of people today is that government has become their God. They want government to fix their problems. They want government to meet their needs. They want government to give them peace. FDR, one of our presidents, he famously said that if you create a government big enough to give you everything you want, that government will be big enough to take away everything you have. Prosperity which we all want, is birthed in the morality that comes from God. Israel knew this. There is a God, and he's going to judge us for what we do, so we have to live righteously and justly and be fair, and we're going to have to answer to God for what we do. He'll either punish the wicked or he's going to reward the righteous. Everything that makes America great today is us living in the blessing of prosperity that was birthed in morality and that morality comes from God. This value that we have, that we're all equal, that comes from God. The value of protecting the innocent comes from God. The idea that if you do hard work and you do a good job, you can get ahead and improve your life, those principles come from the Bible. The idea that we should punish evildoers, and they shouldn't be able to just run around filming themselves, doing whatever they want and get away with it, that comes from God. God. 
The idea that other people shouldn't be able to steal your stuff or your life comes from God. The idea that people with means should be generous and charitable to people who are poor comes from God, but they should be generous and charitable voluntarily. God never expected the government to take all of our stuff away and then distribute it out. We're supposed to be generous voluntarily. All these ideas, people who aren't even Christians love these ideas. These, these, these principles that make America great, these values, even non-Christians go, yes, that's right, that's the way it's supposed to be, that's good. But then they don't recognize the God who is responsible for blessing us. When you turn your back on God and abandon his ways, you're also walking away from the peace, joy, and hope that comes from being under his covering of blessing and protection. And ultimately, when people walk away from Jesus Christ, they walk away from the only door to heaven. Today, what you have is people who reject Jesus and they reject the word of God, but they want all the blessings that only come from obeying God. At least half our population today, at least half of our political leaders think they can create on their own a more perfect union while they're increasingly rebelling against the creator of the universe. It makes me think of Romans 1, which says, For although they knew God, they knew about him, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And we see this happening in our community today. There are people that think like, oh, we don't need the Bible. We don't need God anymore. We're enlightened. We've got technology now. Look how far we've come. We understand better than people did back in the olden days. They think they're wise. They, they're, they're like, we've progressed. And in reality, they've become fools with darkened hearts. You cannot get the blessing of God without God. You look at America today, and maybe as a Christian, some of you feel defeated or scared or hopeless, and you might be asking yourself, you know, have we come too far? Has God turned his back on us? Has God forsaken us? We're honestly, we're asking the same questions that Christians were asking in biblical times. Like in Romans 11, they were asking the same question. Has God rejected his people? Israel asked the same question. And the word of God says, by no means, that's not the case. In Romans 11:5, it says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And that's still true about you. Yes, we do live in a world that, that is darker than the world of our great-grandparents. We live in a world that is increasingly secular and more people are turning their backs on God. And, and we see the effects of that. You see widespread abortion and people mutilating kids' bodies and you know, twerking in public parades and just, oh, you can't let your kids watch TV without worrying about what they're going to see. And, and you see governing leaders and they're corrupted a lot of times and you feel like you can't trust anybody in authority. And you go, man, like what's happening? Is it hopeless? Like, should we just all escape to the mountains and, and hide out until Jesus comes back for us? And has God forsaken us? Like what's going on? And the word of God gives us encouragement here. No, no. There's a remnant, a remnant. That means there's, there's a group left that still loves the Lord. A remnant, that's what it means. You know, it's like if you eat a salad and there's like a remnant of lettuce in your teeth, like there's still some left, right? There, there's a remnant of people who were chosen by grace. 
And it's good to remember that, that we were chosen by God's grace. We didn't just one day become righteous and say, like, I'm going to become a Christian. No, God chose you. He sent the Holy Spirit to open your heart so that you could see the truth that Jesus is the way, that God's word is true, that you can't save yourself. You were chosen by grace. And you look at the world that we're living in today, and it's easy to be feeling overwhelmed. It's easy to feel scared as you watch the news. It's easy to worry about your kids and what kind of world are they going to grow up in. But I want you to be clear on this, that it's not hopeless. God hasn't forsaken you. He has put you here on this planet in this community for such a time as this you were chosen by grace you are here for a reason and we have a purpose for being here where you have a remnant you have potential for revival and that's what we need today is revival we we're not here to just escape off and you know hunker down until Jesus comes back we're here to preach good news to the captive so that their eyes can be open, that they can see the truth. And I believe that America's best days are ahead of us. I believe that the best is still yet to come. And we'll look back on this period as a turning point when God's people decided to wake up, stand up and fight for what is true, to preach the gospel and not be ashamed anymore. Today, we're living in the blessing that came from our great-great-grandparents' faithfulness to God. And we can't take it for granted any longer or else it will slip away and we'll find ourselves in a terrible place. We are here as a lighthouse shining in the darkness with truth. And we've got a message for our nation. God says in 2 Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me right now. And I want to do this first. If you're here today at either of our campuses or online and you'd say, I'm a sinner who needs to be forgiven by Jesus the savior of the world. I, I wanna confess my sin and my need for God. This is a moment for you to do that. Let's bow our heads right now first. And if you say, man, I need to accept Jesus as my Lord and savior today. I wanna put my faith in him. I realize there's no hope without him. There's no heaven without him. There's no life without him. Everything I've been longing for is only found in him. Right now, I'm gonna ask you to just open your heart to the Lord. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. You can pray this prayer with me. Just say, God, I need you. I need Jesus to save me. I admit I can't save myself. And I confess that I've sinned against you, God. I've broken your laws and I've done my own thing. I, today I'm putting all my hope in Jesus and I'm asking Jesus to come into my life as my Lord, as my King, as my Savior, and as my friend. I believe that Jesus died for my sin so I could be declared guilt-free in God's eyes and forgiven. I believe Jesus rose again, giving me eternal life, so I don't have to fear the grave any longer, but I know heaven is my home. I'm gonna follow Jesus from this day forward. In Jesus' name, I pray. Listen, wherever you're at, if you just prayed that prayer, raise your hand right now to God. Don't, that's awesome, sir, thank you. Anyone else, say that's right, yeah. You just prayed that prayer, you just accepted Jesus, awesome. At our campuses, if you're online, there's no better decision you'll ever make. So let's do this as a church now. Let's take a moment just to pray.
for our community, to pray for our nation, and to pray for God to move. Will you join together with me? Let's pray all together, not just me and you listen, but all of us pray. Let's pray out loud. God, we pray for our kids. We pray for the kids of our church and the kids of our community, Lord, that you would protect them from the lies of the enemy. We pray that you would protect them from physical danger and violence, that they would grow up knowing the ways of the Lord, that the one true God of the Bible, that he is the only one who saves, that your word would permeate their lives and be planted in their hearts. God, we pray for our marriages today. We pray for strong marriages, for husbands to love their wives and for wives to honor their husbands, Lord. I pray for forgiveness in marriage, for healing in marriage, God, and that our marriages would be stronger than ever. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray for your favor on our church. We pray for anointing on our church. We pray for lost people to come to faith in Christ through this church and that the saints would be equipped to do the work of ministry, that we would be disciples who follow Jesus, not just consumer Christians. Lord, we pray for our community and for our nation, that the hand of God would be at rest over our nation and that you would pour your blessing out on our nation. We pray for America to rise up in greatness again as a lighthouse to the other nations, proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You are our King. You are our Lord. Lord, we honor you and we give you praise in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's give God praise right now, come on.